from last week, if we truly believe the doctrine of total inability, that is that because of sin, man has lost all ability and merit to do that which would merit salvation, then I think it logically follows that it is of biblical necessity that God sovereignly act and choose for our salvation. So if we believe that we are incapable of doing anything to merit salvation, that's a problem. And that's a problem that we won't be able to overcome ourselves. And so if we do adhere to the doctrine of total inability or total depravity, then as difficult as sovereign or unconditional election can seem at times, it is of necessity for us in one way or another. Now, there are a lot of different ways that people will flesh out election. That could be through something like an Arminian system of foresight or foreknowledge. So when we hear the gospel and we respond favorably to the gospel, God in eternity past, because he is everywhere present at all times present, he sees that moment and he elects us based on what we as free beings will do. Well, that's not what Calvinists would believe or what the doctrines of grace teach. And so for us, if we are completely dead in our sin, then something has to happen for us because we won't, we won't do anything. And we'll flesh that out in, in just a moment. But here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith has to say about this. And again, I just think this is a helpful kind of commentary or summary of this doctrine. And it says this in chapter 3, article 3. Before the creation of the world, according to his, that is God's, eternal, unchangeable plan and the hidden purpose and good pleasure of his will, God has chosen in Christ those of mankind who are predestined to life and to everlasting glory. He has done this solely out of his own mercy and love and completely to the praise of his wonderful grace. This choice was completely independent of his foreknowledge of how his created beings would be or act. Neither their faith, nor good works, nor perseverance had any part in influencing his selection. So what the doctrines of grace teach is that the answer to that problem that we have, that total inability that we are ridden with by birth, and not just like physical birth, but as spiritual beings we are dead, the answer to that is that God chooses to save. So I want to give us a, a few cautions here, though, because as we start to flesh this out, I remember when I first became a Calvinist, uh, maybe 12, 13 years ago, I, I, I did so begrudgingly and really combatively, actually. I grew up in a KJV-only independent Baptist church in the foothills of Appalachia. I just over and over again would hear things about Calvinism and how awful Calvin is and how horrible Calvinists are. And quite frankly, I didn't even know any uh, because there weren't any where I lived. But I always remember being confronted with this and thinking, God doesn't want robots. Christianity, the faith, is not about being a robot. Why would God ever make someone love him? That's, that's crazy. Is that what God really desires, is manufacturing faithful people? Because those aren't real faithful people if that's what he does. And, and that was the argument that I, that I had constantly. I just kept over and over again. And by the way, I had never read my Bible all the way through at this point. And one of the things that convinced me of being a Calvinist thoroughly 
was not only having to face this in college, I was a, a pastoral studies major, so not only facing it, but I decided, you know, I'm just going to take four months and I'm going to read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And when that was done, I was a Calvinist. I, I mean, and I don't, I don't say that, please like hear my humility. I didn't mean to giggle at the end. That's, that's what happened. As I started thinking, okay, well, here's what I believe. Here's what I definitely don't believe. Now let me read the Bible. I thought, oh my goodness, I, I can't quite put these two things together. And, and so that's, that's how it happened for me, just over time. So here's a few cautions that I want to give us. So our understanding of time will always be limited by the temporal. For us, we only can know what has happened in the past or presently, and none of us can know the future. So we function with a very temporal understanding of time, but for God, any moment in time stands actually in eternity too. God cannot be separated on the spectrum of time to, to be here or maybe there, but definitely not here because that'd be too much. You're stretching him too thin. So whatever happens temporarily for us, God knows in eternity. That is, it is with him at all times. So let me explain that to you. We can't understand that or deny it. That's kind of the whole point as we understand God's ability to be everywhere in every moment. We, we cannot understand that. But just because we can't understand it doesn't mean we get to deny it, right? Furthermore, we are not free to limit God by what he hasn't given us to fully understand. So the things which God has not fully exposed to us in his word, we can't then use those things to limit him. Now, that's not to say that some people are right in their understanding or wrong in their understanding, but what it means is that we can't limit God based on what we can't fully comprehend. So when we think of something like God's total and utter sovereignty, and yet the, the twin truth of human responsibility, we can't separate those things or start to flesh those things out in a way that makes sense to our reason. That's what I mean. So whatever doesn't lie in scripture, we cannot use that thing, namely our minds, to then limit what God can or can't do to fit our particular system. That goes for me teaching this class as well. And so I just want to remind us of that. So each of us must ask this question, and I want you to legitimately ask this question every time the Bible is opened in front of you, whether it's your own study or whether someone's preaching and teaching to you, I think we should all ask this question. Will I let my understanding of God be shaped by scripture or will I limit my understanding of God to human reason? That's a big question for each of us. Will I let Scripture speak, or will I limit God on any point by human reason? Every single one of us need to ask that basically all the time, because each of us will at some point be tempted to see something in Scripture that rubs us the wrong way that we then try to potentially explain away. And I'm not just talking about election. I'm talking about many, many different things. It's, it's part of the reason you have something like a liberal theology. What you end up doing is you end up letting your understanding of the world shape the way that you understand Scripture, and the next thing you know, you have theologies that are completely insane. So one final note here, just on terms. Election and predestination are oftentimes used interchangeably, and that's totally fine. So sometimes you'll hear someone say predestination, and what they mean is election. Or when they say election, they're referring to predestination. That is totally fine. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to be a little bit more rigid, and we're going to define predestination 
in terms of God's sovereign predetermination. So we're going to limit it to that. So when we say predestination, we're talking about God's predetermination. When I use the word election, I am specifically going to refer to God's electing unto salvation. Okay? So if those things get used interchangeably, that's totally fine. But for our purposes, because we're kind of going to do a little bit of, an, of a more in-depth study, we're going to be a little more rigid with those things. Okay, so let's make a biblical case here. Point number one is that God's sovereign grace is the necessary means by which fallen man is saved. So this is really just a rehashing of what we talked about last week. But for those of you who weren't here, I think this will be really helpful, and it will be a helpful reminder to those who were as well. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5a and 8 and 9. Here Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the grounding of sovereign election is the doctrine of total inability. So I think, logically and biblically, Total inability, that is what Paul is talking about here, the fact that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that is the basis for our need of a sovereign God who makes a sovereign choice to save us. So we talked about Lazarus last week. This is the Lazarus principle. If we are totally incapable of doing that which living men would do, then God will have to act for us. He will have to call us out of the tomb, and we will not be able to walk out of the tomb until God says, come out, right? So this is why we need some sort of election, and the case we're making this morning is that we need a sovereign election. Point number two, sovereign election cannot be based on any earned merit by fallen man. So John 6, 37, chapter 15, 16, and then Romans 5, 6 through 10. John says this in chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then in chapter 15, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love, shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So, I think scripture is very clear that those who come to Christ do so because they are appointed to do so. You see, we're just using biblical language there, right? Those who will come to Christ do so because they are appointed to do so. So John 6 and then chapter 15, we see that the giving and the choosing 
precedes any action whatsoever. So the fact that God gave and chose and we then would come, those things are important for our understanding of time because they show us how, in fact, God saves. He chooses, he gives, and then we, we come. And so we come because he chose. That's the logic that it is making here. But you might say this doesn't prove that it isn't earned. Okay, yes, that's fine. It can be an eternity past. We have no problem with that, but it still doesn't answer the question of, does God see that we would come? And so, in fact, as an Arminian would say, he's electing us because he sees, because he's God. Who can say that God, who would limit him or put him in a box to say that he can't see what will happen in the future? You can't say that he doesn't do that. And we would say, that's, that's true. That's not what we're saying. We're asking the question, would we ever choose, right? So Arminians and Calvinists, we would all agree that God in eternity past chooses to save. That's, that's no problem. But why does he choose? We say it's because he has chosen to do so, simply. But I think Romans 5 verse 6 really gives us our answer. It says, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? The one whom would choose him? the one who had the ability to choose him, the one who would be faithful, the one who would be trusting, the one whose hope would be in Christ? No, the ungodly. That's an important term. And what that means for us practically too is that when we look at our salvation, our merit is not what we can or cannot do. Our merit is Christ alone. So when we look at God's choice, we don't say, okay, well, okay, like what does the man do or what does the man not do? That, that's important, but if we stay there, we're wrong. Because as soon as we land on the answer, we should say, look what Christ has done. Who did Jesus die for? The ungodly. Okay, wow. So what that means is that for you and I, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, God has looked on us, the ungodly, and he has seen what Christ has done for us, and he has declared us righteous and not just any kind of righteous, Christ's righteous. That's amazing. So God chooses, and he chooses the ungodly, and he appoints them to come. Point number three, Scripture's testimony is that sovereign election is decreed in eternity. So I want to double down on this, that this is God's decree in eternity. So Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Romans chapter 8, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, he being Christ. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what we learn here is that all the spiritual blessings for those in Christ, those that are present, that we are experiencing now, that is redemption and reconciliation and being filled with the Spirit, and those that we will have even in the future, that is no sin, no tears, living forever in perfection with a perfect and holy, loving, gracious, just God forever. Those things are grounded in eternity past. So the things that we experience now and the things that we will someday experience 
What Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 is he is grounding those things in the past. And so he wants us to kind of start making these connections of when and how these things happened. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, we see that every spiritual blessing has been given to those who have been chosen before the foundation, right? Who receives the spiritual blessing? Those who have been chosen before the foundation. And then if you look at Romans chapter 8, which is known as the golden chain, the unbroken chain of salvation. Well, let's actually look at it backwards. So working backwards, he says that we will be glorified. Those in Christ will be glorified. Why will we be glorified? Because we have been justified. Why have we been justified? Because we have been called. Why have we been called? Because we have been predestined. Why have we been predestined? Because we have been foreknown. Okay, sure, none of us have a problem with that. Everyone agrees that we're cool with it. But, but why does it matter that we understand this? Why is this important for us to grasp? Why is this not just head knowledge that we can pull out? It matters because it means that our salvation is secured by eternal decree. Our salvation has sovereign collateral. Well, when we think about our salvation, when we have to give an answer for why we're saved, we can simply say, because it's been decreed in heaven. There's collateral to this life of faith that I'm living. If, if I have a day of failure and I'm not the best Christian that I can possibly be, or if I have a season where I fall into even grotesque sin with repentance, mind you, then what holds you in those moments? What God has decreed in eternity past, that's what holds you. That is the basis of your assurance of the faith. Not that you can live the best possible Christian life, but that you have been held in eternity. That, that you can, and we'll get to this the final week, you can in no way lose this thing because you didn't gain this thing. This is a decree. This is a command of God for your salvation that is held in eternity past. And if it's held in eternity past, that means nothing in the present or the future can undo what God has decreed. That's, that's hard. And oftentimes as, as pastors or even Christians who people will come to you and they say, man, I'm just, I'm really struggling in my faith. I'm having doubts. I'm having questions. Okay. Do you believe in Christ? Yes, I do. Do you believe that he died for your sin? Yes, I do. Okay. So what is the problem? Well, I've done this and this and I'm scared and oh man, I'm just, oh, it's awful. And oh, uh, uh. friends, your assurance will never come from you. And, and you need to remind yourself often that your assurance comes by decree of God. One of the things that the reformers, I love the reformers so much, especially on stuff like this, because they get to points when you're reading and you're like, man, they're so smart. This is crazy. How can they understand this? I can't wait till they get to this point because I have no way of understanding. And then you get there and they're like, and we can't understand this. And you're like, are you kidding me? You did all of this work to tell me we can't know. Seriously? And, and sometimes the, the reformers are so simplistic. And one of the things they say about the assurance of salvation is that if you believe that you are a Christian based on the gospel and you're concerned that you don't believe it, then have assurance. That's really encouraging to me. But we understand these things by understanding good theology. So point number four, the basis for predestination is not foreseen human action, but the fall. So the basis for predestination and remember, we're distinguishing between election and predestination. So his predetermination is not based on foreseen human action, but the fall. So what is the necessity of this? 
well, yes, our total inability, but bigger than that, the fall. Okay, so let's flesh this out a little bit. So Romans chapter 9, verses 14 and 16 and 19 and 21. And if you want to really do a deep dive into election and sovereignty, Romans chapter 9 is your, is your chapter. It's one of the most difficult and most infuriating and most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. Because there's just some stuff in there that you're like, God, you're just so much smarter than we are. And we need you to tell us, and you're not telling us. And then you'll see things that you're just like, this is, this is amazing. And so let's look here just a bit at it. So starting in verse 14, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So what is he talking about here? In the beginning, he's talking about the Jews in particular and how it's not simply by birth that you are a true Jew, but by God's choice, right? So not all of those who are of Israel are of Israel. So there's a distinction here in Paul's mind between those who are born Jewish and those who are chosen spiritually. And so his readers here in Rome would be really concerned that he's saying, hey, being a Jew is not really advantageous to you, okay? So just because you can trace your line directly back to Isaac, not a huge benefit. So here's his question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says to the question here, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So if God is just showing mercy and he doesn't really care about what people do or don't do as, that, as it pertains to that choice, then why are we at fault? If he's not choosing us based on the good or the bad, then why can God look at us and say, I'm going to choose you or not choose you? That's the question. For who can resist his will? I'm going to do what God chooses me to do, right? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And in heaven, Job was like, mm-hmm, right? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So salvation isn't revealed in Scripture, and this is really important, as what's fair, but as an act of mercy. One of the big disconnects between a Calvinist and an Arminian is what Calvinists do is we focus on sovereign election solely on the basis of mercy. But what happens with an Arminian in their theology is they base their understanding of election on what seems to be fair and unfair. Now, they don't not have an understanding of mercy. That's true. But the difference is that we have no understanding of what's fair and unfair as it relates to God's electing unto salvation. It is only and totally mercy. We can't start looking at humanity as a moral neutral. That is, is that there are some who will do good things and be chosen and some who will do bad things and not be chosen. That's, that's not how we are allowed to look at humanity. What we have to do is look at those who stand condemned in their sin. That's it. That is the only understanding in Scripture of who we are outside of Christ. We are those who are condemned. We are those who are depraved. We are those who are incapable of doing anything to merit salvation. And it is out of that one lump 
right? And we oftentimes were like, why is he going to the analogy of a potter? Because in this analogy, this potter only has one clay. There are not multiple clays that he is divvying out. He's working with one clay. He's working with one lump. And it's out of that that some are chosen unto salvation. So when we think about sovereign election, our only understanding is of God's mercy. And remember, sovereign election means chosen unto salvation. There is nothing fair about salvation. You do understand that. It is the most unfair thing that has ever existed in all of eternity because it comes not at our cost, but at the cost of Christ, God's only son, the one who came to this earth and lived perfectly and did not sin and went to the cross willingly and gave up his life. No one took it from him. This God-man came and lived and died for us. There is nothing fair about it. It is only mercy, only. And so when we look at this lump and see this portion drawn out of this lump, it's an act of mercy. So logically, that means what remains in that lump can never be unfair. There's no unfairness between those who are chosen and not chosen. And once again, let's remind ourselves, oh man, who are you that you would question God? Because the first thing that happens is, how is that fair? And it's, a, it's an okay question, but we can't ask it of God. That's, that's what Paul is getting at here. And so here's the problem that we face, though. I said that the basis for predestination is not foreseen human action, but the fall. So I'm going to make the case in just a moment that God not only predestines the elect, but the non-elect. And I think we're making that case logically from Scripture, but here's the problem that we face in the way that I, I headed this. So giving mercy presumes the need for mercy, right? If you're going to be merciful to someone, you're not doing that because they've been very pleasant to you. Chelsea does not come to me and she's like, hey, um, Tyler, I know you've been out mowing the yard all day and I just wanted to give you this wonderful dinner. And I'm like, I forgive you. <laughs> She'd be like, you're taking my dinner back. You're so weird, <laughs> right? It would be odd for God to give mercy to those who are not in need of mercy. Here's the problem. He does that on the basis of zero will or exertion on the people he's being merciful to. That's, that's a problem. So God is being merciful, but what does Romans chapter 9 say? He has compassion on whom he has compassion, and it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, so you're saying that we don't have to do anything for this either way? That's right. So what are you giving us mercy for? If we've done nothing, what is the mercy for? Do, am I the only one that sees the problem? It's, uh, is it all of us? No, it's just me. Okay, well, let me tell you how I figured this out. Number one, I didn't fully. So infralapsarianism, or let's start with supralapsarianism. This is derived from the Latin, but supra refers to above or before, and lapse refers to the fall. Right, the lapse of man into sin. And then infra refers to below or after the fall. Well, what are we talking about? We're talking about God's election. So did it happen before the fall or did it happen after the fall? Well, we would be, and I think most Calvinists would be, I think rightfully so, infralapsarians. So what we say 
is that back to that understanding of God's time, we see things in logical order. We can never see things happening at exactly the same time in the same way. So what I mean by that is I can't be jumping and also be standing still at the same time. It is logically impossible. And I'm sure there are physics things there as well and maybe even math things. I don't know. I know none of that. All I know is that logically I can't jump and be still at the same time. So that means when we understand, okay, well, did God choose us? Did we fall into sin? Did we fall first and then he choose us? Did God not know something or did he know something? What we would say is that logically that God's choosing unto salvation happened after the fall. But here's the catch. For God, the decree happened all at the same time because God also in his divine decree made allowance for the fall. And when I say made allowance, I mean he let it happen. He foreordained it. Not sin, but the circumstances of the fall. So all of this happens in God's mind immediately. So as we understand it in our limited human ability, we would say, okay, well, then our understanding here is infralapsarian. That is that in our understanding, God created all things and allowed for the fall and then decreed our election. So what is the basis of God's predestination? It's the fall. That's, that's the grounding on which he has chosen some and not others. That's how we answer the question, how can you show mercy to those who have done nothing because of the fall? Remember, Adam and Eve, they did exactly what every single one of us would do. Okay, point five. Scripture shows us that God predestines both the elect and the reprobate. So reprobate is just a word for sinner or depraved or fallen. Scripture shows us that God predestines both the elect and the reprobate. So Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, and again Romans 9. So in Proverbs 16, it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Romans 9, 22 and 23. But if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, so in God's sovereign, mysterious plan, he has foreordained all things that come to pass, and yet he is in no way ever responsible or culpable for sin. So here's what we have, once again, looking at Romans chapter 9. We have these vessels of mercy and these riches of his glory that have been prepared beforehand. So we understand this to mean God's sovereign election unto salvation, right? This, this group that we've been talking about and that we've seen in multiple passages of the Bible that have been chosen irregardless of their action, they have been made alive out of deadness, he has beforehand prepared them and all of the riches of his glory that he will give to them. That is coupled with the vessels of wrath that have been prepared for destruction. So here's what kind of sometimes happens. We say, okay, well, yes, God elects and it's totally fine. We'll even, we will even give you the sovereign election where he doesn't see anything in the future. That's totally fine. So a Calvinistic view of those he chooses unto salvation. Well, everything that we understand in Scripture logically and biblically 
it ends up applying in exactly the same way to the reprobate. They have also been prepared in a way that those who were chosen were prepared beforehand. Here's one of the things we have to understand. When we start thinking about, again, God's election and his predestination, and especially when we get to these two points, we immediately start thinking of fairness. Well, this isn't fair that he would prepare them and they would, they would never even have a hope to be saved. Okay, well, that's fine, and I understand that. I think we all understand that. Look around at a physical human being who hasn't placed their faith in the gospel, and your doctrine of sovereign election is going to be challenged very quickly. I mean, we can all agree with that, right? I think about my, my family members, my immediate family members who do not know and actually detest the Christian faith. I, I find it hard that there is a chance that they were not chosen unto salvation. But again, we don't get to reason with either our intellect or our emotion. So what we see here is that when God chooses some and not others, he, he actually does it with a purpose. This is, this is not something that just happens because God is like, you know what, I'm in charge. What, what does it tell us? In, in Romans 9, 22, it says, He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So unlike us, God can't be either merciful or just. We we look at this and say, well, yes, God is merciful. Let's just stay there. Yes, he's chosen some, and then there are just some who will go to hell. Like, let that just be their group, and let's stop talking about it. Paul doesn't posit it that way. Paul actually says, your choosing and the foreordaining of the reprobate is in order to reveal the riches of glory to those who have been given mercy. It, it enhances our understanding of the mercy and the glory of God, that he would choose any of us, that he would look at any dead person out of one lump and say, I'm going to save you. We were all in the same lump. There was nothing that distinguished us in God's mind. That means there is nothing admirable in us for salvation. It is only God. And so what do we say to this? His passing over of those whom he has not chosen is beyond our understanding. We, we, have, we have to stop there. We have to look at something like Romans 9, 22 and 23, and even Proverbs 16, and there are many more, by the way. We have to stop there and say, it seems that this is God's good purpose for his glory. And are we okay with that? And then number six, this will help explain everything I just said. So six, election and reprobation display the fullest picture of God's character. So Romans 9, 10 and 13, and 17 and 18, and I pulled these out because I wanted you to see them separately. It says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So here in 10 through 13 with Jacob and Esau, we have a physical picture of a spiritual truth. So before birth and action, God chose to love Isaac while also withholding his love from Esau. Again, God can never be passive in one of his attributes. So he can't be kind and then just. He is all things at all times. So when we see that he loved Jacob, it means that he was actively withholding or hating Esau. Okay, so he loved one and he chose out of his own sovereign will to not love the other. Okay, so verse 11 answers the question, why? To accomplish God's purpose of election. That's, that's the answer. I, I have done these things to accomplish my purpose. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So this is for the purpose of God's accomplishing what he intends in electing some and not others. Can we rest in that? And then in verses 17 and 18, what we end up seeing with Pharaoh here is that where there's no condemnation and wrath, there's no knowledge of God's mercy and grace. For this very reason, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. Show what power? Well, in this case, his power to deliver his people. You, Pharaoh, think that you are the ruler over these people, that you are their master, but what I'm going to show you is that I'm their master. So what he ends up doing through hardening Pharaoh's heart, and the Bible also says, this is another mystery, that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then we're told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What's the answer? We don't really know, but we know that both of those things happen. Why does he do that? To show his grace and mercy in leading his people out, right? So I was uh, reading as I was uh, studying this about this shop in Paris, and they make this beautiful white lace. And I'm not like a lace connoisseur, so it's not really my thing. But maybe it's the most beautiful lace in all of the world. It's so marvelous. It's so intricately woven. And do you know how they display it? So you can, so you can see all of these intricate pieces. Well, what they do is they hang it in the window. But in order for you to see it as it's meant to truly be seen, they hang behind it a piece of black velvet. And it struck me as I was reading and thinking through these things, it's exactly what God is doing in saving some and yet not just passively passing over others. The black has been hung intentionally behind the lace. Why? So you can see the glories of the lace. And without the black velvet, it would not be fully possible. What the Bible is telling us is that while it seems very difficult, and it is, God hardens out of this same lump some. He foreordains their non-election, and he foreordains or chooses some unto salvation. And those two things serve one another. For us, for those who have placed our faith in Christ, those who are condemned exalt what Christ has done. It shows us the beauty of God's sacrifice of his only son. And for those who have not placed their faith, for all of eternity, God's mercy and his grace will be their condemnation. It will be their literal hell. So the doctrines of grace are amazing, and they are amazing simply because 
they speak of grace to those who don't deserve it. Okay, so let me run through just one of these. Uh, Evangelism as a proof for sovereign election. Skip to point two because this will prove point one. The gospel itself proves predestination. So the Matthew passages on the back there, and then 1 Corinthians, it says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled to that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. Matthew 13, 11, To you it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 1 Corinthians 1, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So as it is with Isaiah, so it will be with every person who ever shares the gospel. There are some who, by design, will never truly hear and believe the gospel. What Jesus is telling his disciples here is that there is a foreordained truth, and it is this. The crowd has been prepared not to hear. How do we know that? There's a key word, to fulfill. To fulfill what was told to Isaiah, this crowd would hear everything that I, Jesus, am going to tell them, and yet they will not see and they will not hear. This has, this has been prepared beforehand, okay? And then verse 11, he says this, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So he gives to his disciples this ability to understand the secrets of the kingdom, but to this crowd, he does not give them. Remember, God is never passive. He's not just like, oh yeah, you guys can have it and you got, I'm, you're just there. No one is ever just there to God, right? So to some it has been given, to others it has not been given the ability to understand the secrets of the kingdom. And then in the 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 and 23, we see that the gospel of God is ordained as a stumbling block, right? So it's, it's a stumbling block, except to who? Those who have been called. So Paul is talking about the Jews and the Greeks, those who want signs, those who want wisdom, but then he's also talking to Greeks or Jews in Corinth, and he's saying, hey, you're Jews and Greeks too, and it's not a stumbling block because you're called. So for these people, it is the gospel itself that keeps them from believing anything that God has done. And for these people, it is their salvation.